0: Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? Do you know what movie that line comes from? There, yeah, Snow White. Snow White. In the classic Disney movie, Snow White, the evil queen, the evil stepmother of Snow White, has a magic mirror. And every morning she gets up and she asks the mirror a question, magic mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And the mirror always replies, my queen, you are the fairest in the land. And the queen is pleased with that because the magic mirror never lies. And this is all good up until one day when the queen asks her question again, magic mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And the answer comes back, my queen, you are fairest, it's true, but Snow White is a thousand times more beautiful than you. And with that response, the evil queen's world is turned upside down. And she ends up doing the unthinkable. She ends up sending out a huntsman to kill Snow White. Have you ever thought about the reason why these fairy tales endure? The reason why they endure is because this fairy tale speaks to something deep within the human experience. You see, you may not have a literal mirror, some of you might, (laughs) but you may not have a literal mirror that you gaze into every morning But you do have something that you build your sense of self upon. For some of you, it may be your beauty. For others of you, it may be your talents and your abilities. For some of you, it may be your intelligence. And at some point, you will hear, you are the fairest here, it's true. But there is one more fair than you. And maybe that's where some of you are today. Maybe your world is crumbling because someone who you thought you were more intelligent than is getting promoted above you. Or maybe someone who you thought you're more attractive than, they are actually getting engaged and you're still single. Or maybe as you look at your life on Facebook and Instagram in comparison to all the other people and what they're doing, it seems like their lives are amazing and your life is just average. You know, I know what it's like to struggle with this. I didn't share this in the first, first, um, first time through, but, but I thought I'd share it today. I mean, a number of years ago, I remember uh, Pastor Andrew was this young pastor who I was training up, and he was growing in his ability to preach. And I remember the Sunday evening service was starting to really grow under his leadership and it got up to like 230 people coming along. And I started to feel this sense of being threatened by this guy who I had trained and I deeply loved. You know, if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will happen at some point. A rival will come along and as you gaze into the mirror that you have created you won't like what you see. But what happens when the rival is Jesus? Well, this is what happened to John the Baptist. You see, John the Baptist had this enormous ministry. Everyone was coming to John the Baptist from Jerusalem and Judea, but that was all until Jesus came on the scene. When Jesus came on the scene, Jesus's ministry started to increase and John's ministry started to decrease. But amazingly, Instead of responding with jealousy and envy and despair, John rejoices, and he says those famous words, he must increase while I must decrease. So how can you have joy in a world that is constantly seeking to get us to compare ourselves with others? How can you have joy when you see the successes of your rivals? How can you have joy when they seem to be increasing and you seem to be decreasing? Well, this morning, we're going to go back to our study of John's gospel, and we're going to go to John chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 3 this morning, and I know that it seems like we're going back in time because Pastor Vincent took us to John chapter 4 last week, but... You know, we overlooked the last narrative of John chapter 3, and what we do at City Reach is we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, and this this part is just too good to overlook. There are so much nuggets of truth in here that I just couldn't pass by it without actually looking at it. So today, we're going to look at this final narrative. So look down in your Bibles in verse 22. This section begins with a temporal marker. After this, after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in Jerusalem, after this, Jesus left Jerusalem and he traveled with his disciples out into the wilderness. And it says in verse 22 that he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, we know later from John's gospel that it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing. It was actually the disciples of Jesus who were baptizing. But still, Jesus is out in the wilderness and he's preaching and he's making disciples and they're being baptized. But we also read in verse 23 that it says that John was also baptizing at Aon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Why was John baptizing there at Salim? Because there's heaps of water. See, John was a Baptist. Didn't just sprinkle or dip Full immersion, baby. That's a Baptist joke for all of you. Baptists. So you have Jesus preaching and making disciples, and they're being baptized. And you have John also preaching and making disciples, and they're being baptized. So Jesus and John's ministries overlapped. Now, if we just had the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would think that Jesus only began his ministry after John was put in prison. But this is not the case. John was preaching and baptizing and making disciples, and so was Jesus at exactly the same time. And then we read this in verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, we don't exactly know what this discussion between John's disciples and this unnamed Jew was about, but maybe it went something like this. You know, you guys are moving away. You guys, you disciples of John, you guys are moving away from Jewish orthodoxy. You know you guys are teaching that in order you, you need to be baptized as a symbol of your repentance. But how do we know that your work is legit? I mean, Jesus is also baptizing. So which baptism do you need? Do you need Jesus's baptism, or do you need John's baptism? You can imagine this Jewish man stroking his beard and saying, oh, this all sounds a little bit fishy to me. Nevertheless, while we do not know exactly what this unnamed Jew said, it seems to have got the disciples of John fired up because look down in verse 27, it says, and they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. John, that's your thing. You're John the Baptist, for goodness sake. And Jesus is now baptizing and all are coming to him. Notice in their statement that they don't even mention Jesus by name. They are upset that this young upstart of a rabbi, Jesus, is upstaging their rabbi, John. You know, often a person's disciples are more zealous for their reputation than they are. And this was certainly the case with John's disciples. Jesus' success is threatening their movement. I mean, if their movement leader is not top dog in Israel, what does that mean for them? Now, this would have been a major temptation for John. you imagine his disciples come to him and say, that guy who you endorsed, you know, that guy that you endorsed, John, Everyone is coming to him. It would have been very easy for John to feel threatened and for John to say, criticize Jesus or or maybe slander Jesus or, or maybe say to his disciples, you don't need to worry. I've got a plan. What we'll do is we'll set up a water slide so that people can slide down the water slide into the river and be baptized and everyone will come back to us. But John does none of that. Look at what John says in response to his disciples' objection in verse 27. He says, a person cannot receive what? One thing unless it's given to him from heaven. See, John is saying, I know you're upset that Jesus is now getting all of the disciples. But you guys don't understand, guys. Everything you have is a gift of God. You see, this is such an important lesson to keep in mind. All of my gifts, all of my talents, all of my resources, they're a gift of God. Maybe you have an intelligent mind here and you can think really well. It's not about you. It was a gift. It was given to you. Maybe you have a lot of resources and money. That's a gift that's been given to you. Maybe you have a thriving ministry. That's a gift that has been given to you. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, there is not one thing that you have that you did not receive. Everything is a gift. Now, why is this important? And why did John say this to his disciples right here? Well, it's because his disciples had a bad case of what I call success syndrome. I wonder if you've got a bad case of success syndrome. Sadly, throughout the years, I have suffered with success syndrome. What is success syndrome? Success syndrome is where you think that you are only successful if you have visible results that other people can see, and it's upon you to maintain and get those visible results. And you see, the disciples of John, as they looked out, it didn't seem like John's ministry was successful anymore. And so that's why they came to John. You know, over the years, people have come to me and they've said, Pastor Timon, Pastor Timon, such and such a church down the road, they are, you know, they're doing this and everyone is coming to them and they are being so successful. And the implication is, Timon, if you don't get your act together together, If you don't get things together here at at City Reach, then maybe we won't be successful. Now, while sometimes I think, you know, people are just being sincere and they're wanting me to see more effective people, I think often it's just a bad case of success syndrome. Kent Hughes, in his book, Liberating Your Ministry from Success Syndrome, he starts out by telling the story of this young pastor Who one day, get this, he backed up his truck to his office and he loaded all of his books, his desk, and his files. And then you know what he did with them? He took them to the dump. He dumped them. And Hughes writes, it was his way of putting behind him the overwhelming sense of failure and loss that he'd experienced in ministry And Hughes writes, this young gifted pastor was determined never to return to ministry, and indeed, he never did. But success syndrome does not just infect people in ministry. It infects everyone. Maybe you're here, and you have this overwhelming sense of failure over your life. Because as you look at your life, you don't have the visible signs of success that other people celebrate. Maybe you're not the side of person who people would like on Instagram. Maybe, maybe you're here and, and your family, even though you've tried to be faithful to bring them up in the Lord, they're not walking with God. And so your family is not celebrated in the Christian community. You know, I often, I, I, one of my roles is I look after OCF, Overseas Christian Fellowship students. And one of the things that they struggle with is this overwhelming sense of failure in the eyes of their parents because they've never lived up to their parents' expectations. Maybe that's where some of you are today. You have this overwhelming sense of Failure in your life because you don't have these visible signs of success. Well, how do you cure success syndrome? We need someone like John, a good mentor to come and to remind you of a fundamental truth. There is not one thing that a person receives that they haven't been given from heaven. Everything you have is a gift. And life isn't about, you know, trying to be bigger and better than the people around you. Life is just about receiving the good gifts of God and being thankful and then being faithful. You see, John right here, it might have seemed from everyone else's perspective like he was failing as his ministry was decreasing, but in the eyes of heaven, he was the biggest success. He was being faithful to God's call in his life. You know, and this is where freedom comes from. The freedom to when you see other people doing well and when you see them increasing, the freedom to to rejoice at their successes rather than be envious and despair. It comes from recognizing that everything you have and everything they have has been given by God. So be thankful and be faithful you know last week we had at our conference Greg Crooks and John Elmore from Watermark Church in the United States and Watermark Church by anyone's estimation has all of the visible marks of success a huge auditorium. I've been, I've been to their auditorium in Dallas. It is just amazing. An amazing facility. 20,000 people coming. Gifted staff. They have Shane and Shane who are the worship leaders. You know, recording artists who, are, who, who lead their band at their church. But i got to tell you, I was really, really impacted by something that Greg Crooks said to me. He said this to me. He said, You know, at Watermark Church, we never speak about growing the church. We never have, because it's not us who grow the church. The Apostle Paul would say, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so Greg says, all that we're concerned with is just being faithful. Are we being faithful to biblically shepherd the people that God has given us? Are we being faithful with the opportunities that God has given us? Are we being faithful to teach the word with power Sunday after Sunday? That's what Greg said. This is what we're about. This is what Todd, our senior pastor, is about. He never talks about growth. You know, as we think about some of the opportunities that God has given us as City Reach, we're praying for the land across the road. We're praying for a Mandarin speaking pastor. We're praying, God, what's the future of the counseling ministry? Do you want another pastor to come in and take over from um, Pastor Jeff? As we pray through those things, I want you to know that the question I have is not that we could be bigger and better than anyone else, but how do we be faithful, God, to steward the opportunities that you have given us as a church? And as I said, I think this is the pathway to freedom. Don't concern yourself with trying to squeeze out in your life the visible signs of success rather be thankful and be faithful for what God has given you because on the final day God is not going to compare you with anyone else when you stand before Jesus that day all that matters will be will you have you been faithful to steward what he has given you. And I think on that day, we will be hugely surprised at who heaven's champions really are. Because we'll think that it's all these people who you know, had all the visible marks of success in this world, but it might be actually some unnamed people who just did what they did in the name of Jesus For no applause whatsoever. Well, let's continue reading down in verse 26. John continues in his response to his disciples. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You see, John knew who he was. He says, I'm not the Messiah. (laughs) But I've been sent to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. And then John uses a parable in verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So the bride is for the bridegroom, right? That's what happens in a marriage. And then he says, the friend of a bridegroom, what's that? The best man. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man stands. And when he hears him, he greatly rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Now what's going on here? Well, in the culture of that time, the best man had one job. The best man's job was to bring the bride to the wedding. Now, I know in our culture, the best man's job is to bring the bridegroom to the wedding. But back in their culture, the best man's job was to bring the bride to the wedding. And when he brought the bride to the wedding and he heard the voice of his friend, the bridegroom, he would rejoice because he knew the wedding was at hand. And there was one thing that this best man was forbidden to do. Guess what it was? To run off with the bride. You know, even today, there are probably several things that if you did them would make you a bad best man. You know, if you didn't get the bridegroom to the wedding on time, then you would be a what? A bad best man. If you forgot the rings, so you're standing there and they say, can I give you the rings? You would be a what? Or if, you know, you're, and I've been to many weddings, you're at this, this, the, the table and you, and you insult the mother of the bride in your wedding speech, then you would be a what? <laughs> a terrible best man, that's good. But the worst thing that you could possibly ever do if you're a best man is run off with the bride. But that is what many pastors do and many people in ministry. In their hearts, they are married to the church. Jesus' bride. This week, as I was studying this passage, the Lord said to me, Timon, is it your church? Or is it my church? You see, because it's actually not our church. It's Jesus' bride. It belongs to him. And the whole role of a pastor and the whole role of any of us in ministry, and we're all in ministry here, is to point people to Jesus. And when John says He says, no, 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 you don't understand, guys. My role is to bring the bride to the bridegroom. And John says, now this is happening and people are coming to Jesus. My joy is complete. My job is done. And he says, he must increase and I must decrease. And the word must in Greek is the word of divine will. He is saying, this is God's will. That Jesus now takes center stage, and I now move into the background. And historically speaking, this is exactly what would happen. In a few months, John would be arrested. He would be put in jail, and his head would be chopped off. But that's okay for John, because John knew that he had a little part to play in God's kingdom story. He was to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah, And he was faithful to play that part. And you and I, we just have a little part to play in God's kingdom story. You know, for all of us, our season in ministry will come to an end. Our ministry is temporary and we are expendable, which means God doesn't need any one of us. You may not know this if you've just come to our church, but our church has been around for a whopping 130 years. Can you believe that? Over 130 years. And I'm sure over that time, this church has had many biblical pastors who have shepherded the church, but I've only ever known Pastor Paul, my, success, my previous pastor. I'm his successor. <laughs> he, actually, he actually took over the church in 1974 when I was born, Right, and But there must have been other pastors who faithfully shepherded this church. And I'm sure if the Lord doesn't come back for another 50 years or so, then God will raise up other pastors to shepherd this church. And in the year 2050, when the senior pastor of the church is asked about the previous senior pastors who went before him, he'll probably be only able to name the previous guy as well, the Reverend Josh Davies, This reality, if you don't know that, that's a kid in the youth group, okay? (laughs) But this reality does not actually discourage me that my role is temporary and that I am expendable. It actually inspires me because it's not my kingdom. It's not my church. It's not my bride. I only have a little part to play in this kingdom story. And what's that part? Like you, it's to point people to Jesus so that people will cherish Jesus and worship Jesus and honor Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And you see, this is why we get so filled with jealousy and envy at our rivals, and we're filled with despair when they're increasing and we're decreasing, because we've bought into the myth that life is about us. It's about us building our fame and our kingdom and our notoriety. And when that seems to be going away, that's why we feel threatened, and that's why we send out our henchmen. But joy comes when we realize it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about Him. Now notice down in your Bible from verse 31 onwards, these are not the words of John the Baptist. These are actually the words of John, the writer of the gospel. John here is giving us a commentary on why Jesus must increase and John the Baptist must decrease. Look down in verse 31. He says, He who is, comes from above is above all. Why must Jesus increase and John the Baptist decrease? It's because of the supremacy of Jesus. He is above all, John says. Why must Jesus increase in your life and you decrease? Because Jesus is above all. Verse 32, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. John the Baptist is pretty good, but he's from the earth. He's nothing in comparison to Jesus. You might be pretty good, my friend, but you are nothing in comparison to Jesus. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. You know, John the Baptist had a pretty amazing relationship with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit from birth, but he was nothing in comparison to Jesus. Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. And verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The whole of eternity will be based on one question. What did you do with Jesus? Jesus. It does not matter about what you did with Timon Benson. It does not matter if you think that I'm funny or gifted or talented or anything. In the end, there is only one question, and that is what did you do with him? Did you believe in him? Did you repent of your sin and turn and trust in him? Because not only is he the Lord of heaven, he's the Lord of hell. And if you don't believe in him, he has no other option but to send you to judgment. Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? You see, the problem in a comparison culture is we often compare ourselves to the people of this earth when what we need to compare ourselves with is the one who is above all. I mean, you, know, you might be beautiful here. I'm looking out and I'm seeing some beautiful people. But your beauty is nothing in comparison to the beauty of Jesus. He is the rose of Sharon, the lily among the fields. He is beautiful beyond comprehension. You might be pretty gifted and skilled. You might think you're a good preacher team on You're nothing in comparison to Jesus. You might think you have an amazing kingdom, but your kingdom is nothing in comparison to Jesus. You see, John says the one that you truly need to compare yourself to is the one who is above all. And when you compare yourself to him, it will blow apart, blow apart. That desire to think that somehow I can make myself more successful and bigger than I am Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? And God's people said, Jesus. Jesus Jesus is the fairest of them all. You see, you were never created just to gaze on your own beauty and be infatuated with yourself. You were created by God to gaze on the beauty of King Jesus. And forever, and forever, Be in worship and honor and give him glory and praise and adoration forever and ever and ever and ever. So how do you find joy in a culture that constantly is trying to get us to compare? Recognize that everything you have is a gift and be thankful and faithful. And don't compare yourself to the people of this earth, compare yourself to the one who is above and gaze on his beauty. Well, we are going to finish today by singing a hymn. And this hymn actually speaks about the beauty of King Jesus. And uh, when I chose this hymn uh, for it, because it's, it's Fairest Lord Jesus, you know that hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. This is such a beautiful hymn that like it's a, it, it compares in the stanzas all of creation and says, all of creation is fair, but Jesus is fairer still. And uh, I chose this hymn and, and yesterday as I was preparing my sermon, I thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, Google inspiring hymn stories. Because you know how behind some of the hymns there are these inspiring hymn stories? Like behind Amazing Grace is the story of John Newton. And I thought, man, this would be a great way to end the message today. speaking about Ferris, Lord Jesus, and find some inspiring story behind it. And so I looked it up on Wikipedia, and do you know what I found? Nothing. Not a thing. We don't know who wrote this hymn. The best guess is it probably was some German peasant who wrote this hymn. But what more fitting way to end? As Count von Zinzendorf used to say, you want all of life to be about bringing glory to God and then you die and then you're forgotten. Because it's all about him. All about him. Let the beauty of Jesus... Fill your heart and flood your heart so that you're thankful and faithful. Let's stand up.